1 Corinthians 12 is our passage this morning. I'll be reading through verse 27. So not quite the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 27. This is God's holy word. Now concerning spiritual things, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the be, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for all your word. We thank you that it is sufficient to instruct, to edify, to equip. We thank you that also by the power of your spirit, As we hear in faith, you are able to challenge, to convict, 
and to encourage. Lord, our prayer now is that you would be at work by your Spirit, stirring up faith in our hearts, that our ears would be open, that we would see and rejoice in the glory of Christ, and that we would move forth in a new and in a joyful obedience to apply ourselves to the things here in this text. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm guessing you all heard that uh, last Saturday's Presbytery meeting went pretty long. (laughs) Some of you may have heard that. Now, imagine if I stood here and told you that the reason it went so long was actually because we as a body were deliberating and we concluded... We as Fellowship Presbytery, the churches of Fellowship Presbytery, are going to stop serving the Lord's Supper. We're just done with it. No more Lord's Supper. It's silly. It's pointless. It's just a little bit of bread, a little bit of juice. Who really cares? Or what if we said, we're going to stop baptizing. Not just babies. We're going to stop baptizing people altogether. No more. No more of this nonsense. Sprinkling, pouring, dunking, whatever. No more water. Would you be troubled? You would, right? Yes. You'd be a little bit concerned and you'd probably be leaving right now. Or imagine we said, we're going to stop ministering the Word. No more reading Scripture, no more preaching, no more Bible studies. We don't, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Not at our churches. We're going to be defined by some other activities. Who knows what those are? Would you think that disturbing? You would. No more prayer. No more prayer meetings. We don't do that. We, we might meet together, but we're not going to conclude. We're not going to begin or conclude with prayer. All right? We're not going to do that anymore. You know there's something wrong, right? And the question for us this morning is why are we so quick to downplay, or some of us to even discount altogether, the importance of fellowship in the church? Now, maybe not in this church, because you all have been so blessed to hear that so regularly. But in the church at large... And maybe I can ask you the question more directly, and this is where it will come home to some of us. You may have the whole fellowship piece in its proper place and know that it is very important in God's church. But maybe I can ask you, why are you so quick to downplay, to discount, or to discredit altogether your role, the importance of your presence, your contribution, if you will, by God's grace through the Spirit? Why are you so quick to downplay, discount, or discredit your role in the fellowship of the church? Now we know, of course, as Michael started off by saying in the announcements, we have these things called the means of grace in the church. That's why we we emphasize the Word of God. We emphasize prayer. We practice the sacraments. And we emphasize fellowship. Means of grace, these ordinary activities, outwardly appearing absolutely ordinary. They don't look, they don't even feel extraordinary while you're participating in them. But by God's Spirit, when practiced in faith, they are absolutely extraordinary in power. They appear, they feel normal, but they are in fact very powerful. Because God, by the working of His Spirit, 
works to graciously strengthen the saints who participate in faith. That's the point, right? The Lord's Supper, ordinary bread, ordinary juice or wine, ordinary taking and eating and drinking. It doesn't feel remarkable. But God's Spirit works powerfully through those, in those who practice it in faith to strengthen them. What I'm doing right now, if an outsider, a non-believer were to come in, it would seem totally ordinary. I'm just, this is public speaking. I'm just giving a passionate speech in front of a group of people. But we know that it's more than that. Thank God it's more than that. It's not just the abilities of the speaker to stand in front of the group and persuade them or convince them or impress them with truth. It's the spirit at work in your hearts while this fool stands in front of the group and speaks. It has to be that, otherwise it is worthless. Outwardly ordinary, nothing seemingly extraordinary. And if we can say that of this activity, we can say that of the sacraments. I wonder how well we understand. We need to say that of fellowship too. We emphasize its importance, but do we really understand why and how? And I would contend that this passage in some ways gives us the mechanism of how fellowship is a means of grace. The mechanics, the behind-the-scenes working of why fellowship becomes a means of grace in the body of Christ. I dare say, being even a bit controversial, maybe, there is a sense in which each of us, if we are truly a Christian, we have the Spirit. Are we not ourselves, individually, means of grace when we are gathered together? And this passage shows us how that's so with what we call spiritual gifts. What we'll see here is four quick points. The reality of spiritual gifts, the unity of spiritual gifts, the diversity of spiritual gifts, and the necessity of spiritual gifts. First, the reality of spiritual gifts, just that they are and what they are. We need to look at that. Our passage opens with the words, and you may have noticed, I may have piqued your attention when I read, now concerning spiritual things. Now your translators, I think rightly so, insert the word gifts there. You may even see a footnote there that says, or spiritual persons. It could be spiritual things. They're not wrong to insert the word gifts there. Don't distrust the translators. Because Paul obviously goes on to speak of spiritual gifts. But it's important to see that Paul doesn't actually use the word gifts here. We know that when Paul uses this phrase, now concerning, it's a transition in the letter. It's a transition to answering another question that the Corinthians have asked him. And here Paul is actually using the Corinthians' own word, a word which literally translates to spiritual things or spiritual persons. But if we read on in this chapter, and in fact we read some of the passages we read just earlier, Romans 12, some in Ephesians, the other places in the New Testament where Paul talks about these things, he uses a different word altogether. He uses the word gifts. The word is charismata, charismaton, some form of that word. And the reason I bring it up is not just to point out, look at the similarity to the word charismatic, right? We know where the charismatic movement gets its name. They want to be associated with, identified with the spiritual gifts. The important thing about the word is its root. It is charis. It's grace. Gift. And the point is a powerful one if you take the moment to think about it. The Corinthians are referring to these things happening, these things that they're able to do as spiritual things. Emphasis on the spiritual and the spiritual people who wield these abilities. 
But Paul refers to them correctively as gifts. Emphasis on grace. The first, the important thing you have to understand about these gifts, Corinthians, is that they're just that. They're gifts. They're demonstrations. They're actually dispersals of God's grace to His people to work through them. Spiritual gifts are not about the one who has them. They don't highlight the haver. They highlight the giver and His grace. It's Paul's first and most subtle corrective against an error that he's going to spend the next few chapters railing against. An error that's taken hold among the Corinthians. Throughout this chapter and the next and 14, you'll notice that Paul tends to emphasize, he mentions most frequently a couple of notable gifts, prophecy and tongues. Now there are lots of others. We read one of the lists in Romans 12. But there's a reason Paul is emphasizing, mentioning most frequently those more impressive gifts here in 1 Corinthians. And it's because the Corinthians believe these more impressive gifts are the really important ones. And therefore the really important Christians, the really important members, are the ones with the important impressive gifts. And Paul's point in these chapters is that is absolutely not the case. Could not be further from the truth. There are many members and many spiritual gifts. And each and every one, no matter how unimpressive or unremarkable, no matter how unnoticed it may go by you or me, each and every one is invaluable to the body because it's God's gift to the body. And there's one other truth about spiritual gifts. It's assumed here in this text, but I want to make it explicit And 1 Peter gives it to us in chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but he says, Each has received a gift. Remember that wording. We hear it in our passage too. Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified in Jesus Christ. So these gifts, we can say some things about them, right? They're given to each and every believer. They enable us to serve the other members of the body in such a way that God is glorified through Jesus Christ. These spiritual gifts that Paul is going on about in chapter 12, the point of them is that they're workings of God's grace in the members, that those members would bless and benefit the others to the end that the body is built up and Christ is glorified. Again, the one highlighted is not the haver of the gift, but the giver, chiefly, even Christ. It's Christ. And so if you were to picture the working of a spiritual gift, it's the Spirit doing this, right? He, he comes down, works in the believer to pour His grace, spread His grace outward so that God would be glorified in Christ. It's an arrow that just kind of does this, right? Anything that terminates down here, that ends up down here, just ooing and awing other people, isn't a spiritual gift has to return to the glory of Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians 12 when we move on to the second observation, the the unity of spiritual gifts. We see their their power and their purpose. And as we start in verse 4 and we look again at these verses, he says, there are varieties of gifts. Well, that's my next point, Paul. The unity, though, the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verses 8 through 10, he gives a few examples. And then verse 11, all these... This is the point. Are empowered by one and the same. You hear the redundancy? By one and the same Spirit. Don't miss it. Who apportions to each one individually as He wills. The point here is fairly straightforward. Paul begins his all-out assault against this erroneous idea that some members are better and more important than others simply because their gifts are more impressive. And his angle of attack is simple. It's a gift. The gift says nothing about you, your abilities, your specialness. Each one of these spiritual things is a gift that has the same origin, the Holy Spirit. Each one is given by the Spirit of God because of His grace to showcase, manifest His grace. If these spiritual things are actually gifts from God owing to His grace and not your merit, not even your hard work, then you can't possibly be arrogant about them, right? You wouldn't possibly be so foolish as to be arrogant about something that was just given to you, right? Being proud of your spiritual gift is like being proud while you drive in a really nice car, which was loaned to you. Right? It's the classic picture of the, the high school boy, no offense if there are any in here, but this is just the way we are, right? Who puffs up his chest while he drives past the group of high school girls in his daddy's Mustang, right? It's like, it's not yours. It doesn't say anything about you. Your daddy's got some money. That's nice. It's not even yours. And Paul aims to remind the Corinthians here, These gifts aren't to be measured and compared against one another. They all come from the same Spirit. He's the point. So certainly the members, the havers of the gifts, aren't to be measured and compared against one another. What would be the point of that? All these, verse 11, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. And it's interesting because if Paul's first assault against the error of the Corinthians is to emphasize the unity of the spiritual gifts, his second comes from the opposite angle. Like a good master commander, right? He attacks from both sides. It's interesting. He emphasizes the unity and then he emphasizes the intentional diversity. He highlights their variety and their value. Look at verses 14 through 25. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. That doesn't make any sense, you can hear him saying. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? But as it is, verse 18, God arranged the members in the body. You imagine doing a science experiment in school and your job is to design the perfect body, the most impressive and high-functioning body. Who in here would go, like, let's start with eyeballs and we're just going to finish it. It's all eyeballs. The whole body is eyeballs, right? You'd fail. That would be a horrible science experiment, right? The point is, God knows exactly what He's doing. He's arranged the members. And eyes shouldn't say, well, I'm not like an ear, so I don't belong here. And then in verse 21, he 
attacks in a slightly different way. The eye can't say to the hand, so members can't say to other members, well, I have no need of you. The head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Verse 24, God has so composed the body. Paul goes on this long rant, as Paul loves to do, refusing to allow the Corinthians, and God refuses to allow us to think of spiritual gifts as only those things that make us capable of remarkable, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping feats. As we heard in Romans 12, many of the gifts are not showy, they're not impressive, they're not flashy, but they're all equally invaluable. Romans 12, he lists service, teaching, exhortation and encouragement of others, leading, mercy, contribution. I mean, these are ordinary things that don't grab your attention. But the impressive eye can't say to the unimpressive ear, I don't need you. And we see it's, it's a sweet thing that Paul is making the point, if there's no room for pride in our gifts, there's also no room for embarrassment or shame, or really disappointment. Each one was given by the Spirit, the same Spirit. This wonderful quote I came across in the commentaries, the measure of the greatness of any particular gift is neither its degree of impressiveness nor its apparent miraculous nature, but its usefulness to the church. You know what the measure of a gift is? It's usefulness. And rather than comment further on this point, we can move on to this reflection of the whole. We've seen their unity and their diversity, and now we come to the necessity of the spiritual gifts. This point that every member is needed. And we know that everything the Lord does, He does purposefully. He does nothing incidentally or accidentally. He's not just sovereign. He's very wise, right? He doesn't make mistakes. He's not just in control. He is perfectly in control. He does everything intentionally. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we read in verse 18 that he arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. In verse 24, he composed the body. There's a purpose for each member being placed where they are and empowered as they are. And those surrounding verses, this body illustration, Paul forbids any member to downplay or discount their own role. No member can downplay or discount or discredit their role, their value, their necessity. And then in verses 21 through 26, he forbids any member from downplaying, discounting, or discrediting any other member's role or value or necessity. The reason is because everyone has a gift with one single source, the Holy Spirit. And the point is not how prominent your gift is, how it measures up against others, how visible it is even. The point is not how impressive it is. It's not even how useful it seems or feels to you or anyone else. The point is that it is useful. And the proof of its usefulness is simply that that he gave it. Right? 
Don't quibble with him. He, he's the one who composed the body. He has wisely measured out these gifts that he's given to the church. Like a master chef, right? Now, now you can bicker and argue as you sit and you watch your TV from your couch, master chef, when he makes certain decisions. I'm not going to try because I'm a horrible cook. You can quibble with the chefs on TV. You can't quibble with him. He knows exactly what he's doing. Just the right ingredients in just the right amounts, just the right numbers of this member, just the right numbers and the strengths of these gifts and those. So to make any attempt to remove yourself or anyone else, any other member, I should say, from active presence in the body is to say, God, you have it wrong. Body doesn't need me. Doesn't need my gift. Well, you're saying, God, you're wrong. You're a liar or you're a fool. You messed up. To say the body doesn't need you, doesn't need him, doesn't need her, is to say, God, you're wrong. You messed up. And I love that in verse 22, Paul speaks, he can't say this any more strongly. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, the point is not that they're more indispensable. The point is that every one of them is. Yes, there are prominent members, like those who preach and teach, right? Elephant in the room. They're the prominent ones. They're the visible ones. But the fact is, the less prominent members are every bit as indispensable as the most prominent members. The gentle encourager in this church, who may never speak to more than three or four people at one time, certainly won't get in front of the whole church. Every bit is indispensable because God has arranged the body with them here. The quiet giver who gladly gives generously to the church, unbeknownst to everyone here, indispensable. The humble server, we could go on. In fact, if we take the word seriously here, something else that I learned from Michael, we have to conclude your pastors, your pastor is no more indispensable to this church than any other member. In fact, how do you know if you're indispensable to this church? Not by looking at what kind of gift you have, not by finding out what your roles are here, but simply realizing God has you here. If God has you here, newsflash for you, you are indispensable here. How do I know? Because God has you here. End of discussion. Similar to the question, how do I know I'm married to the right woman? Well, because I'm married to her, right? We don't play the games of fate. I'm married to the right woman because I'm married to her. How do I know you're indispensable? Because God has you here. Don't question it. As long as he has you here, he has purpose for you here, and you are indispensable here until he calls you elsewhere. The day he calls you away through location or promotion to glory... That day you become in that day you are no longer indispensable here, right? But not a day sooner. If we rightly understand what God is saying through Paul here, we understand what we already assumed, what we already believed at the start, right? Fellowship is a means of grace, that's obvious. Each and every Christian has the spirit. And so we have these spiritual gifts given as a manifestation for the common good. So I, I think there's a warning or caution here. Maybe maybe better word is a correction. 
if you are a Christian, the Spirit is at work in and through you for the common good. But there's another if there, isn't there? He's at work in and through you for the common good if you're actively connected to the body. You have to be connected. You have to be active. You have to be here. You can't do any common good if you're not around the common, right? If you're not connected. Now, knowing Christ Ridge better than any other church, besides hopefully my own, I can say with reasonable confidence what I said at the start. Y'all do very well at this. I envy the gladness with which I know you gather together on Sunday evenings. In fact, I'll be honest, I've shamelessly tried to rip it off at my own church. (laughs) I love hearing stories that Michael tells me of Sunday night flocks and evening worship and things throughout the week, breakfasts and Bible studies. But some of you still do need to hear it. If you... You are here. You are a Christian. You have the Spirit. You belong here too. Every part of the body is necessary. Whatever part you are, you are necessary to it. You might be a hand. You might be a foot. You might be an eye. You might be an ear. It doesn't matter. You're necessary here. You can't say, I don't belong. I'm not needed. I add no value. Don't quibble with him. And if I could drift from kind of correction or caution to encouragement, as I've already done, Christian, you belong. You are needed here. You're wanted here. You may just not know it or feel it, but you are. And I don't know how. I don't know how the Spirit intends to gift you to bless and to build up the body here. I don't know. I just know that several times we've come across this word each. So yes, you, even you, whoever you are, struggling to believe these words, you have the ability. In fact, He's given you the ability. He's taken care of the how. Don't worry about the how. The question you need to ask yourself is not how am I going to, but am I taking the opportunity? And you know what He's given the opportunity to? It's just the fact that you're here. He's provided the ability and the opportunity. It doesn't get any sweeter than that, does it? He's taking care of the ability and the opportunity. All you have to do is prayerfully, gladly, expectantly show up. Just show up, right? And I know some of us, we sit back and we're so reserved because we just don't know how. How has He gifted me? I don't know what ability He's given me. Can I ask you, are you making it a point to submerse yourself in the body, surround yourself with the body, spend lots of time with the body? If you're not, let me just say that's your first and most obvious error. How are you going to figure out the thing that works for the common good when you're not in the common? And if you are showing up and you are spending lots of time in the body, but you're still fretting over this and you still don't know and talking about this spiritual gifts idea just makes you even more anxious about it. May I humbly suggest to you, stop focusing on yourself. Isn't that the point after all? It's all about Him. It's all about Him. Many of you are probably aware of the spiritual gifts tests that you can take, right? They're just like personality tests or whatever, you know, 
your favorite what Disney character am I thing you can do on Facebook, right? <laughs> they, can be that, they can be that silly, I think. I even had to take one as part of a class in seminary, and I say that not to knock it. The professor just made the point. These things are out there. This can be helpful. Maybe it will confirm something you think. But can I just respectfully say how silly it is that we, we try to figure out what our spiritual gift is by answering a bunch of questions about ourselves? Isn't it obvious? The focus is far too much on ourselves there. And I think that's true in general when we wonder about these things. I'll give you Paul's simple charge as we close. Not to focus on self. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 14 as he's kind of wrapping up this whole discussion. Chapter 14, verse 12, he says, So with yourselves, O Corinthians, since you're so eager to see the Spirit at work, you know what you need to do? Strive to excel in building up the church. You want to see the Spirit at work? You want to know He's working in you and through you and around you? Strive prayerfully, zealously, joyfully to build up the church. You do that, and by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything He may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And just don't over-spiritualize it. Let it be ordinary. Let it feel ordinary. And trust that He's at work. All the other means of grace, they feel ordinary. You don't feel electricity coursing through your veins when you take the Lord's Supper. But you know He's at work. It's the same in your fellowship. So please, members of Christridge, be encouraged. You're very ordinary gathering together. I envy you as you'll gather here in this place later today. And I'll be doing it with my, with my church as well. So. But your very ordinary activity together may be far more extraordinary than you realize when you gather here in faith and in love. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you work through us. We thank you that you have worked in us. We thank you that you have worked for us. Our salvation is not of our own work, but Christ's. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has been sent to apply his work to us and to knit us together, to tie us and build us up together as one body in him. Thank you that we have life in Christ and as the body has life, not just physically, structurally connected together like a a body lying in a coffin. That's not alive and that's not what your church is. No, we are alive with the Spirit at work in us and through us in our very midst, connecting us together, building us up for your name's sake. Help us, Lord, to be greatly encouraged by this and to just rejoice in it and to press on in doing it more and more, to not only love each other well, but to actually like each other, enjoy each other, and seek to strive to excel in building each other up. May that be said of Christ Ridge. May it be said of Redeeming Grace and Fellowship Presbytery, the many churches throughout this land and across and around the world, Lord. May that be true of the body of Christ in every place. We ask in Jesus' most holy name. Amen.